1: In the fall each year we all congregate the five dogs gathered at the church of hellgate the scriptures reading from the book and mon Our favorite verse: my God of precious drunk and obnoxious, not well, chest Georgia children Ain't nothing enough the in the lane Now the 3,000 of our best friends It's Saturday and last. Night.
0: Welcome to the Saturday in Athens podcast. We are a Georgia Bulldog show by dogs fans for dogs fans. I'm your host, Herschel Gurley, and we are thrilled to be joined today by DGD Rennie Kern. Rennie played for the dogs from 2007 to 2009, finished up his business degree after his professional career in the NFL ended. He was a third round pick in the 2002 NFL draft. He's now an entrepreneur, author, and speaker, Rennie, thank you for joining us today. We are fired up to have you.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be on.
0: So I want to start with you uh, in Snellville, where you where you grew up and played high school ball. And I just want you to start by telling us about the role music and sports played uh, in your upbringing.
1: Yeah, that's an awesome first question, man. I actually uh, grew up uh, the first part of my life in Atlanta, like Atlanta, Atlanta, So we're off of like North Hill's Beaver Highway area, uh, kind of in that Brookhaven area, but uh, on the other side where, you know, there's more uh, Hispanics and you know African-Americans and whatnot. And so uh, I was a knucklehead as a child, man. I was the only boy, youngest of three. Both my parents, most people know, uh, are immigrants from Liberia who came here. And My mom came on a scholarship to Emory and uh, got her master's in nursing. So that's how we ended up here in Atlanta. And she eventually Went on to work at Grady, so uh, when I say I'm Atlanta, like I'm at as Atlanta as it gets. So uh, I I was actually born in uh, Crawford Long, it's now Emory, Emory Midtown, and then I went to daycare. Like there was a daycare in front of Grady, so like that's how Atlanta I am. But uh, (laughs) so music, man, came in when as a child, man. Like I said, I was a knucklehead. I was already in the streets at like eight years old, just trying to find something to do and uh, trying to find my identity. And one of the things my mom did to get me to calm down was she got me into music. So I had me start uh, taking piano lessons at eight years old and had an older piano teacher and played in the church and all those different things. And from there, I went on to play the drums in church. And by the time I was in middle school and by the time we had moved to Gwinnett, I was also in the orchestra playing the viola. So uh, music was, was a huge role in my life, man. It, it kind of gave me an alternate identity. And there's so many things, I, I've talked uh, to somebody else about it before, but uh, I don't believe that there's enough research out there to really explain the translation between like music and being a musician and working that side of your brain and how it relates to sports and how it can help set you apart. But I truly believe that it does. I mean, it's no different than that athlete who uh, plays multiple sports and who excels in multiple sports, you know, it just gives you a different perspective. Or you can even look at, you know, in the game of football, you have certain guys who play positions that, you know, they may have played uh, defensive back and now they play quarterback, right? And so having that uh, difference in perspective just helps them uh, to be able to perform a whole lot better. So I think that's that was the same with me in music, man. That was something that I did all throughout, even at the University of Georgia, I always had a musical in- instrument. Piano or you know my viola. I, I, had, I still have a musical setup now, so it really, really does uh, make a difference in playing linebacker. I mean, it's a very cerebral p- position, so um, I was able to use a lot of what I learned through music. And, and even if you play in an orchestra, like it's a team, you know you have to be mindful of everybody around you, the timing, everything like that. So I, I truly believe that helped me as a linebacker.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing and it seems there are some parallels between the discipline that it takes to hone your craft Mm -hmm. musically. And, you know, I think there's a lot of equity there with honing your craft athletically, because a lot of that work is done when nobody's watching. Right. And I, I think there's just a lot of parallels between those, those two paths. And that's a really interesting point about kind of using both sides of the brain and developing that and how that can translate to to athletic success. I hadn't really thought about that side of it, but I agree. That would be an interesting thing to see researched and fleshed out to see if there are some parallels to that. Cause to your point, and I can't name any off the top of my head, but I know just from the sports we consume, there are tons of athletes just via like whether it's a Tom Rinaldi story or whoever, right. Where they talk about, the music they play or the instruments that they played. And it would be interesting to see kind of how many guys who have reached the pinnacle of their athletic careers also had some musical background as well. So that's oh, cool. So yeah. when did, when did football become, I guess, the main athletic focus? Did you, did you play that solely most of your life or were you playing multiple sports? When did that become the area that you honed in on?
1: Man, football was always kind of that, that sport that I knew was, was kind of it. I was always naturally a rough kid and, uh, I don't know what it was, man, but I, I tried basketball. I grew up around the time when uh, Space Jam came out, so I th- I thought I wanted to be like Mike, just like every other kid. <laughs> but I quickly realized, like I was, I was horrible at anything that involved like a sense of touch. So, whether it's basketball, bowling, golf, I'm I'm horrible at any sport that involves anything other than going full speed and like just running through something. So that that was just my nature, man. And so when I found football, man, organized football at 10 years old, uh, playing in in Gwinnett in the Brookwood High School system, man, it just uh, was one of those things where I didn't necessarily know what I was doing right away, but I knew I had the ability, knew I had instincts, like, that was just different. And I realized that from the first time I touched the football, man, uh, as a young kid, before I even moved to Gwinnett, you know, playing backyard football, um, it just was like, I had Spidey sisters that just clicked on, uh, you know, as I progressed, man, as I learned more and more about the game, uh, I just started to really, really be able to leverage those skill sets, man. So I, I was able to be fortunate enough to have a great little league coach. His name was Ronnie Ben. He's from, uh, what is he? He's from South Georgia. I think Alamo, Georgia or something like that, a super small town, one street light. And he was like the biggest dog fan. And, um, once I joined, you know, that little league team, they were like a family man. And, uh, Played offensive line in my first year, offensive and defensive line, because I didn't know what I was doing. But that second year is when I had the biggest growth and started playing running back and really started understanding the game. And then he also took me my first Georgia game that year as well, my second year. And uh, once I walked into that stadium, saw all the fans, started learning the, the cheer at kickoff. Like, I, I remember all those moments, man. and Just like it was yesterday. It's like a movie that replays in my head all the time. But um, once I had that experience, man, it became my obsession. And uh, I I knew, like, that's where I wanted to be. That's where I wanted to go. And I made my mind up at 10 years old that that's what I was going to do is uh, be that kid, that next kid out of Snellville that uh, was a household name That's like a David Pollock or David Green. So that's a a really good transition to my next question because,
0: you know, you play at Brookwood. You have a great career there. You're two-time Gwinnett County Defensive Player of the Year. I kind of have a multi-pronged question. One, when did the interest start from colleges? And then two, what was your recruitment experience like? And was the goal always to end up in Athens or did you seriously consider uh, going other places?
1: So the process for me, man, it, it really started after uh, a little bit after my sophomore year, after that previous class at uh, sign or had their signing day, and it, it started out slow for me, man. I was not, number one, I wasn't even a linebacker per se. Like, I played running back. That's what most people don't know is my, my whole entire career before uh, high school, returning kickoffs and and punts, and I was scoring touchdowns. Like That's what I thought was going to be my ultimate position. My, my favorite players were like uh, Ward Dunn and Marshall Falk and, and those guys, man, and then you know, as I got to high school, didn't get along with my coach my freshman year. He moved me to linebacker, and uh, kind of buried me in the depth chart or running back. So I just uh, got frustrated, and I was like, "I'm gonna hit everything moving." And that's how I started. Uh, <laughs> I developed that mentality at linebacker just from being so pissed off that I was being I was in that position, and it turned into something that became an identity. Where I told myself that I was either gonna, you know, be around the ball or make every single play. Like I just made up my mind that that was gonna be the my standard. And so that's what got me moved up to varsity after my freshman year at Brookwood. And also that's what got me interest, you know, so it was never even really my intent to necessarily be the best linebacker out there. I was just really trying to set myself apart and and trying to achieve my dream at any cost. And so um, the interest there, man, after my sophomore year, and, and even that, when I got moved up to varsity, I had a guy starting ahead of me that was a team captain that was doing great things man and it literally took just weeks and weeks and weeks of preparation and faith until I I got on the field because he he hurt his wrist like that was the story of my career I was never the guy who was you know uh the star athlete or the guy who was given the starting position right away it was always like either somebody got hurt ahead of me somebody messed up ahead of me or just (laughs) one of those scenarios we're down by three touchdowns and I got put in and I was just ready and capitalized on the opportunity so um, that that was really the story of recruiting for me, man. Was you know after my sophomore year, had a, a decent season, started getting some interest. And in the first school that really came in was like Mississippi State. Um, or it, it, I think it was like Southern Miss or something like that. It, it wasn't a big school at all, but just getting those little few interest letters. My first actual call though was for, was from Mississippi State, and uh, that that was like wow, I was so shocked because every everybody during that time was like. You know, even my own teammates making plays, but you're short, you know, even my own coaches like, you know, you know, don't be surprised if they don't come after you uh, pretty quickly, you know, you know, you're undersized and, and things like that. Like I remember specific conversations and just, um, you know, having that chip on my shoulder, man, every time I'll hear that, it would just make me more motivated. And so I, I took all of those uh, opinions <laughs> and I got my ass in the weight room and I got in the film room and I just kept, putting forth the work and putting forth the effort junior years when things really started to take off. Like I had 198 tackles my junior year. And a lot of these uh, tackles were against top tier competition. So I don't know if you remember a guy named Caleb King. Yeah. One running back. Yeah. At that time he played at Parkview. And um, a lot of the attention I got was because uh, my ability to show up in games like that going against, A guy like a Caleb King, and we shut him down. Like, I, yeah, destroyed his ass that game. Like, that was one of my (laughs) favorite games from high school, man. And, um, you know, that was how I got on Georgia's radar and all these other teams' radar. And Georgia still was, like, the last school to to come in. And when I say, man, I was up there, like, I was in Athens, man, like, all the time to the point where – and this was, like, before I was even on their radar. So, 15, 16 years old, my Little League coaches, he was, like, a second father to me. He would check me out of school. And I had one connection uh, to uh, a couple players up in Athens. It was through my coach at that time, uh, Dickie May, connecting me with Des Williams. And at that time you had Craig, the, the three-headed monster, you had Craig Lumpkin, you had Danny Ware, you had Thomas Brown. And so Des Williams was the fullback at that time. And so when my coaches connected me with him and I was going up there and I was that annoying little brother that just would not go away. And uh, would we'll go up there with my Timberland boots on to give me two extra inches and <laughs> doing whatever I had to do just to, just to get in front of them, man. And, um, you know, still didn't have a scholarship at that time. This was like 2004, 2000, uh, yeah, 2003, 2004. And, um, you know, uh, Tech came in, Auburn came in. Um, I went on business there because I told myself, man, that, okay, if UGA doesn't want me, I'm just going to go to one of these other schools and I'm going to give them hell every year and make make sure they regret it. And uh, luckily, like I said, by my, by my junior year, after I had that 198 tackle season, finally got that offer from Georgia. And that's where I always wanted to go. I kind of destroyed my recruiting process because I, I let everybody know, like, this is where I want to be. And this is, this is my dream. I want to play in front of my, my teachers and my former, my classmates, and, um, you know, make my community proud and inspire the next generation of athletes who are coming up behind me, man. So that was uh, my recruiting process.
0: That's a cool story about Caleb King, because we've heard, uh, we heard a similar story when we chatted with Aaron Davis. He told a story about, obviously, he had his two ACLs in high school, so his recruitment was, was kind of funny that way, and so when he walked on at Georgia, or, or prior to walking on at Georgia, he had really good tape against Blake Tibbs, who they had really recruited and had a really good high school career, and he had shut Blake Tibbs down, and so he kind of used that tape to get himself the preferred walk on offer. So I just love stories like that about guys having a vision about where they want to be and just making it happen. You know, I think, I mean, this kind of leads into some stuff I want to talk to you about later, but I think that's a very entrepreneurial spirit, you know, vision to start with just to, to see the dream before anybody else can see it and then just do the things to make it happen. Um, so I love that so when you started did you enroll early or did you enroll in the some like late summer?
1: Yeah I enrolled in the late summer man and <laughs> part of and that's when like things really started picking up recruiting wise social media was starting to take off uh, rivals and just all that hype around recruiting was really really uh, exploding during that time around that 0- 05 to 07 is, is I remember when things like that started to become normalized like leaving early and enrolling early and things like that. And I told myself, man, like, I'm only going to get to be a high school athlete one time in my life. Like, I think I want to enjoy this. And, um, you know, I'm honestly glad I didn't make that decision because it was, it was definitely on the table to, to be able to leave early and go to Athens and all that. And I was like, man, I'm going to enjoy my teammates. I'm going to enjoy this last semester, uh, enjoy being with my family, enjoy being a high school student because I, I just knew like things were going to get crazy. And like I said, I had been to Athens so many times that I I kind of had the realization of the fact that, like, college football was not going to be something easier, just a cakewalker and whatnot. And so I wanted to enjoy the little bit of of, uh, normalcy that I had left. And so, but my mind was set on making sure that when I got to Athens that I was ready to go. So I was training with the top trainers, man. I I was blessed to be surrounded by some amazing gurus, man. Uh, Ryan Golden being one of them who's trained so many Georgia guys um, during their career, uh, before and after their career when they're getting uh, ready for the NFL. Chip Smith, another legend in the game who I started with. Uh, he, he's the one who kind of gave me that extra edge, competitive edge from that like uh, quickness and agility and uh, reaction standpoint. So taking the gifts that I already had and, and being able to maximize it. So I was ready, man, by the time I had uh, gotten to UGA. And it was, I was also uh, already – connected system, some NFL guys and some college guys like Jesse Tuggle and uh, another buddy of mine, Stevie Bags, Hannibal Navies. So they, they really, you know, I went in man with a lot of, of good knowledge and that time really helped me to prepare.
0: That makes, I think your 07 season even more interesting because I think the trend now is kids enroll early because they want to play early. And so the thinking is, Hey, we'll get, the bowl practice in and we'll get the full spring in. And hopefully that sets us ahead of the game to then start as a true freshman and play. But the 07 season is obviously a memorable one for a lot of dogs fans. And I'm sure it was for you as well. Uh, Can you, I guess, share some of your memories from that season and how your transition into a a primary role at the linebacker position shaped up.
1: Yeah, man. The (laughs) The biggest memory I have, and I tell people this all the time, like, you know, fans see the season, but they don't see that preseason. And that's, that's when that, uh, that when you really earn it, that's when you really win. It's like when no TV cameras are around, no fans are around, nobody's in the stadiums. And that I can say was one of my, the toughest preseasons I've ever been in. Number one, you know, you go up there as a freshman, you don't know what the hell's going on. Like you're trying to learn the playbook. You're just trying to survive. And on top of that, man, it was, like, so hot. Like, I just remember (laughs) every day was, like, 100. It was, like, at least 104 to 107 degrees, like, no lie. And so my feet were just burning. Uh, You can see the heat waves rising from the turf on the field, man. And then, you know, you got your helmet on, so it's like a heat box. Like, and then on top of that, like I said, you're confused. And so just even starting out, man, going through training camp, and just getting adjusted to the college football uh life man was extremely tough my freshman year you got study hall you got to get you know 7 a.m you got to go to class and this is summertime nobody else is on campus and so going through that man and getting the adjustment was was one of the uh, biggest phases man and you know you have those days where you show up late and so now you got to do discipline runs at like five thirty in the morning it's just all types of stuff man and Being able to overcome that and and really grow and progress uh, quickly, man, enough to, you know, not get redshirted. That was like my first hurdle was just to show them and to show myself that I belonged at University of Georgia. So that was like the, one of the biggest hurdles, man. Cause you walk into that locker room and I don't care how much you've accomplished in high school. It's like, you, you just, you look around and you like, golly, like, this is crazy. That's like your first shock is realizing that everybody was it Rennie Curran or or better, you know, everybody was number one in their position or number one in the nation coming out. So you have to overcome that mental hurdle of just not being intimidated. And then after that, it's about, okay, I need to get out here, not only compete and not only like learn, but I need to like do extra. I got to go over and above. And even that sometimes doesn't even work. Cause like I, I got in there, dedicated myself, but then we get into the season Got, you know, guy starting ahead of me, 6'3", 250 pounds. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm buried in the depth, I'm third string. And then there's another mental hurdle, uh, hurdle. And this is something that you see a lot of guys struggle with, is they've always been the starter, they've always been the man. So can they handle being second string? Can they handle coach not acknowledging them? Can they handle not being in the spotlight? And so I had to battle that, like, for, and, and it took weeks and weeks and weeks of me just having faith and believing and like, having that vision once again. Before anybody knew who Rennie Curran was, before I was ever on any depth chart or, uh, you know, uh, getting any type of stats or any type of plays, I was literally preparing as if I was a starter. So I would go in the weight room. I would go in the film room, um, you know, early in the morning. I would stay. uh, After everybody left, I would watch and and I was just devouring film, man, for, like, at least two months, I was putting in that work, paying the dues, watching Tony Taylor, watching Odell Thurman, watching uh, Danny verdun Willie, like all, all those guys, man, uh, just, like I said, just dissecting and devouring field, man, watching how they move, watching their technique, and just going out on the field and practice. I would literally be 20 yards behind the starting defense, and I would be their shadow. And I will be, when the ball snap, I'm moving just as if I'm in the game and you know guys will make fun of me and I, I wouldn't even care I'll just be in my own zone and like like I said five six seven weeks passed, you know I got to the point where sometimes like man why'd they even bring me here why they why didn't they redshirt me and eventually what happened was just like I said before got ahead of me messed up and it was in the Tennessee game Montario that's when they had Montario Hardesty and Arian Foster yep. and um we were down by three touchdowns. I think it was like 35-7, to 7, the final score of that game. But, um, yeah, my, one of the last touchdowns was my Ontario Hardesty ran a running back wheel. Uh, and uh, the linebacker was supposed to cover him was a guy who was ahead of me. He blew the coverage and didn't cover him. He scored. And that's when I got the call from the skybox from uh, Coach Jancic. He was like, Renny, you're in. And uh, got in, man, made a couple plays. Made, it, made like one or two TFLs. And that was like my beginnings of showing the coaches that I had what it took, man. And from there, I, I believe I uh, had the Vanderbilt game, uh, was able to make more plays in that. And then the next game after that was uh, the Florida game, which is where I got my first start, man. So rest was history.
0: Yeah, so I feel like two magical games from that season are the, the cocktail party that year. I mean, Florida comes in with all that hype. And it was kind of the coming out party, I think, for that 07 17 um, putting up a lot of points, I, I, I'll always remember Muhammad masqua's long touchdown that day. That play, I'll always remember from the Florida game. Uh, just, I felt like that kind of set the tone for that day. I mean, I know that was the that was the Gator Stomp game and all those things, but I just felt like Muhammad's long touchdown really set the tone for what was going to happen the rest of the game because it was kind of an answer after Florida had tied it. But then, I also want to talk to you about. The Auburn game. I mean, the blackout that year has become iconic. And when we talked to Asher Allen, one of the things he specifically mentioned was that his main memory from that game was you tackling everything that moved that night. (laughs) 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 So uh, speak on that game with that being such a national platform at night and kind of having the game that you did and what that did for your career moving forward at Georgia.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's that point (laughs) in every uh, player's career, especially early on where they just have that light bulb, light bulb moment where like everything comes together, where it's like, you stop having to really think about the play calls and, and now it's becoming second nature. Now you're really able to combine your level of talent with your level of knowledge. And that was when it all started really, really clicking for me, where I really started to become comfortable with knowing that like, this is my position. Like, I, you know, I'm not having to worry and look behind my back is, you know, on whether my coaches. Trusting me to, to be out there and trusting whether I'm going to be able to um, know the cause and know my alignments. Like now, I'm just out there having fun. And this was my 19th birthday on top of it. So like everything literally was, was coming cool. together. Yeah, and it, it was just, man, I'm out there just having fun, just like it's Little League ball again. When you get to that that point as a player, man, there's, there's no better feeling. Uh, and, and that's when you can really ball out. That's when you can really just Uh, Play balls to the wall, man. And so that that was that game. And then one of the coolest things about it, and I I still get on him to this day, he's, I'm proud of him, man. This guy, uh, he's a really successful uh, trainer, training running backs now, works with guys like Najee Harris and and many other top running backs. But Brad Lester was a running back who was with Auburn at that time. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he actually was a guy that I grew up watching at Brookwood because he played at our rival high school and he played with, like, Jeffrey and Core. I mean, they had a dynasty. And uh, they, they were just destroying folks, including us. They, they won a lot <laughs> of the three state championships. Never got to play against him, man. But that day, uh, you know, he played. He was the running back for Auburn, one of the running backs. It was him and uh, Ben Tate. And, uh, man, I, I had one of the best hits on him uh, in my career, just like one of those hits where as, as a linebacker, as a defensive player, you know you – when you get somebody, because you don't even have to wrap up, you just kind of run through them. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was one of the best films in the world. But yeah, that, that game was just, man, the hype around it, going into it, uh, and just what we were able to do, the energy, man, the excitement, um, just how we were all clicking it on all cylinders and just having fun. That's that's one of the biggest things I remember from that game is just how, how much fun it was. And then, you know, once you have a game like that where you, everybody's excited, you end with the win. Uh, everything's going well. Uh, then after that, I mean, you already know what's going on downtown, like, after a game like that. Like, it was – it just put the icing on the cake, just being able to celebrate my 19th birthday downtown in Athens after a big win like that. Uh, I only remember half of it. But it was just good times. <laughs> Oh, that's yeah.
0: fantastic. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, so obviously, you know, after the 07 season was – I mean, I, I think most folks – Logical folks would say that if there had been a college football playoff at that time, Georgia would have been in it. And I think at that time, as hot as that team was, probably would have been the favorite to win. I mean, I I just don't think anybody that, that wasn't the system then, you know, go to play in the Sugar Bowl and just wear Hawaii out all night long. And your career continues to ascend through 08 and 09. What was it like, I guess, dealing with the variation in season? It's obviously like a a meteoric season in 07, then high expectations in 08, and still a very, very good year, just not what preseason expectations were. And then 09, a lot of change and adjustment because a lot of guys left. So just share what, I guess, the evolution of your career was from from a player experience on the team side and then individually as you continue to grow and progress.
1: Yeah, it, it was extremely tough, man, because like I said, you, you put in so much work in the offseason and even during the season. Uh, and then uh, people don't realize, man, when you take that jersey off, when you're not on the field, you're still a human being. Like You still have things going on. Uh, you you still have your family. You still have people back home who are dependent on you. Things like that, man. Like I became a father my sophomore year after the uh, South Carolina game, you know, like my whole entire life changed so when you're dealing with so many things like that man and and you're putting in so much work uh on and off the field like you want to see those results and the tough thing about it is playing in the SEC people don't realize like how small the margin of error the margin of error is like that 2008 season when we lost to LSU and it came down to like that last play where Charles Scott ran a touchdown at the end I mean that was literally like I, I had an offensive lineman who was on like basically tackled me on that play, or else I would have made that stop. Like that's how close it was to us just winning that being able to win that game. And that's that's how small the margin of error is. And so when you hear, you know, when you hear like you have a disappointed season or you, you don't meet those expectations, it's it's really frustrating just, just because we all are out there like killing ourselves, man. Like not only trying to just win a game, but like trying to feed our families trying to really, you know, just uh, set ourselves up for, for the future. And so it, it was definitely uh, tough, man, because we had the talent, we had the ability. But it was like you you have a couple of those really close games that might come. I mean, even the Alabama game, like we, we shot ourselves in the foot so many times, um, made made mistakes and different things like that. But we knew we had the ability to beat them. You know, every, every team that we lost to, we knew we had the ability to beat them, but it was just like, did we show up that day? Did we execute that day? Did we shoot ourselves in the foot or not? So, you know, when you have seasons like that, man, no matter how much success you have individually, you know, it kind of takes away from it just because you know how much potential you have and where you, where you have the potential to be. Cause we start out, we started that season number two, you know, in the nation. And, and so, you know, not being able to to get that national championship and be at that high level where we knew it could be, it, it was like I said, extremely, extremely tough. But nonetheless, we had some amazing memories that year. Extremely talented team. And, and you know, the, the biggest thing, win or lose, man, you come away from this game, like, the relationship with your teammates, like, that's that's the most powerful thing, the memories that you have. Like, all those things that – all those moments behind the scenes, man, that, like, you just think about and you just laugh. But when we get back together, me and the guys, like, we still talk about. Like, that's, that's what really makes it special, man, because I say even if we did – know win the national championship and all those things it still doesn't take away from just those uh things that really matter most man like i said the relationships you build the memories man the the lessons you learn all those things can you give us some insight because you obviously
0: after your junior season made the choice to move on to the nfl and i kind of have two questions about this because my understanding is if i if i did my research right you made a contract with your mom that if you made that choice, you had to go yeah. back to Georgia and get that degree finished. So talk to me about that first.
1: Oh, yeah, man. Like well, at that time, man, like, like I said, it, it, a lot of that decision had to do just with where I was in life, you know, and, and where my family was, man, our family situation like at this time. Man, my, my dad, so seventh, seven, eighth grade year, my dad had lost his business. He owned a shoe repair franchise. And that was how we were able to move into the suburbs and he was able to help a lot of my family who were going through the civil war in Liberia. And uh, once he lost that, man, we just fell into like We never really recovered financially. So from like eighth grade till basically I made it to the NFL, my mom was paying all the bills and, you know, my dad worked odd jobs like he, he was a janitor and. Um, he was a taxi car, cab driver and he almost got killed doing that. Like literally oh, wow. had somebody pull a gun, put it to his neck, pull the trigger and like the gun got jammed. I, like it's only God that saved him. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, worked in a mental mental, um, uh, mental institu- institution. I mean, he was just doing anything he could just to survive, worked at Walmart. All, the whole time I was at Jordy's working at Walmart, mom's a nurse, paying all the bills. His checks were getting garnished from that business he had lost. And so I'm just like, man, I'm tired of struggling. Like, you know, here I am on the field, like, you know, all these great things are going on. But when I take that jersey off, like I said, I'm having to, even with the scholarship, this is what people don't realize. Even with the scholarship, you still have life. You still have things that come up. I have a child to feed, right? Daycare is not cheap. You know, uh, daycares, diapers, formula is not cheap. And then on top of that, I'm taking out student loans and basically giving that to my family to help. Like I'm taking my Pell Grant, splitting that in half and, you know, paying whatever I have to pay for for myself. But then splitting that in half and giving um, that money to my family, man, to help them. And so that was a huge reason why I had to make that decision. Not, not because I just wanted to go to the NFL and want to be at that level. But literally, I was trying to change the trajectory of my family. Like, and that's that's how real it is when we're out there. We're not just it's not just a game like this is life. (laughs) This is legacy changing, you know, and I was the first person in my family to be in this position to even do this, to even have a career starting out making any type anything near six figures. So, um, you know, that's that's uh, what it came down to. And even though, you know, my parents were all for it, my mom, that's how she got to this country was through education. So she's like, yes, I want you to go. I want you to achieve your dreams. I want you to do things for us, but you got to promise me you're going to come back and get this degree. Cause she always knew that, you know, that was something that they could never take away from me. And so signed the contract, man. And, you know, uh, found myself back, back at UGA, back in uh, 2000, uh, end of 2012, 2013, after, you know, coaching staff changes. And I know we're going to talk about this, but you know, found myself back there and I, I earned that thing, man. I earned that Terry College of Business degree with my blood, sweat and tears, man. I would come <laughs> back every offseason as I was in the NFL and the CFL, take one to two classes at a time. And it took me about five years after I left UGA to uh, finish my degree. But I, I got it. And it's one of the greatest accomplishments in my life.
0: Well, I really appreciate you sharing that story. Story because that, that was going to be one of my follow ups is I'm so interested in, in insight as it pertains to the choice to make the professional leap and to your point I think it's a subject that doesn't get its fair share of nuance um, oh. I think I think it's just looked at as a very black and white decision and mm-hmm. there's so much gray in it and so many factors that go into it and you know we've talked a lot on this show. I think because of the way the current college marketplace is set up, if you fault a kid for making the choice to go Go to the pros to try and support his family, I just don't know if I could ever see eye to eye with that person (laughs) because (laughs) I just I I don't I don't understand that. You know, you have the whole point in kids going to college is (laughs) to set themselves up for professional success. And so if you go to college. Yeah. So if a kid has gotten to the point where he set himself up or herself up for professional success, we wouldn't have these arguments or say a kid should stay if the New York Philharmonic was telling them to come play yeah. uh, the clarinet for the Philharmonic, right. right? We'd go, oh, this is awesome. They should go right All now. Right.
1: So All I, right, I don't
0: right. I don't understand. Well, I do understand because it's it's driven by, I think, yeah. greed for the people that aren't actually involved in it. But that's right, a whole right, nother right. conversation, but <laughs> it, I don't understand why we're not just happy that the kid that's at these universities is escalating. And right. All right, right. But anyway, so I, I, I'm I, very I think, appreciative that you share that story.
1: Uh, yeah, man. And I, I'll add to that, man. I think, you know, as much as I, I love the fans and, and everything at the end of the day, we're, we're entertainment, you know, let's be honest. And um, because we are entertainment, there's that disconnect in terms of, our real lives like who we really are like when we take that jersey off like a lot of us man we're that one percent of one percent to come out of our communities like i i tell people all the time we're like that charlie in the charlie in the chocolate factory. we're all like little charlies who are trying to get that golden ticket in a lot of cases you know you have some who come from very fortunate backgrounds but a lot of us we are the first we're the first to come out of our community we're the first to in our families to achieve this level of success. And so literally we have so much riding on our back. And like you said, man, if it's any other scenario in college, nobody would question it. If it's a, if it's a student in the business school or in a journal, journalism school, uh, you know, and Chick-fil-A says, we want to hire you right now. We want to put you in an executive position and pay you six figures after their junior year. They're not going to think twice about that. If a kid in the journalism school is hired by uh, ESPN or NBC and they're like, we want to pick you up right now and we'll pay you six figures and we'll take it, you know, it's not going to be no question. Like, you know, it's, it's no, and nobody's going to fault them. But um, because, like we said, because this is, there's so much loyalty and because there's that entertainment factor um, where nobody uh, is thinking about the longevity of that athlete, 10 years, 20 years down the line, um, that's where you get that kind of pushback and, and everything. And I get it. Like the fans are extremely passionate. I was a, passionate fan once you know being a 10 year old kid 11 year old kid uh to where you know I wasn't and you know, I looked at Thomas Davis I looked at David Green but I wasn't thinking about what was their life like off the field when I'm not watching them on tv you know uh the things that they're having to deal with as, as human beings just trying to make it out here so I totally understand both sides of it
0: yeah that's a great point too there's a there's a shelf life to athletics that yeah is not there with other professions that college kids are going to school for. Right. Like right. we, we have this conversation all the time with, with our kids about like, I played baseball in college. My wife played soccer and mm. those have a shelf life. You you oh. only get to play and enjoy those for a certain amount of time. And yep. then it's, and then it's over with. And so that's why we yep. always try to encourage them to pursue things that they can then enjoy their whole lives. Right. Whether right. that be music or a sport like golf that you can play that's not age and health dependent to a certain degree. Right. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And, and so I I do want you to, to kind of talk about the excitement that goes along with the draft experience because Mm. most, (laughs) most folks that listen to this podcast have never had that. So share what, what the lead up to that was like, and then what draft day was like for you and your family.
1: Man, the, the best way to explain uh <laughs> draft day is like I, I haven't been married before. I'm I'm getting ready, you know, I'm preparing myself. Any any ladies listening, I'm here. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> but the best way to kind of explain the, the draft and preparing is like you're getting it's like married. It's like you've been preparing yourself for this one moment to commit to this, you know this uh, entity that is a lifelong, I mean, it's feeling like it's going to be a lifelong commitment, even though it only lasts like on average three to four years. (laughs) But when you're preparing, man, you're putting your all into it. Like you are fully committed. Every single aspect of your life is dedicated towards this one moment. And uh, this is what you've been working on your whole entire life. For me, you know, started at 10 years old. You know, you don't get into the game like a game like football and work as hard as you do unless you have it in the back of your mind that you want to be at that top level, that you want to eventually get married, right, to, to that right. that team. And so when it finally comes, man, like you don't know that the, the weird thing about those, you don't know who you're going to get married to. So you're just <laughs> sitting there. <laughs>
0: it's like an arranged marriage.
1: <laughs> right? <an> arranged marriage. <laughs> So you're just sitting there, man. And after you go through the combine, which is an extremely stressful process in itself, it, the most stressful job interview you could ever imagine, man, like people, you know, in the corporate world have no idea just how, you know, you, you look at different interviews where they have to go through different phases. They have to, you know, um, go, they might have to go visit and then they might have to do a in-person interview and then a telephone call, uh, but there's nothing, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Military, I believe is the only thing that can really compare to like what we experienced going through the combine, um, just in terms of the level of evaluation. Like I'm talking about every, they evaluate every single aspect of you, every single inch of your body, every single, like every single aspect of your mind, from physical to mental to, you know, to want to know your, your, I mean, evaluating your blood, your heart scan, like everything. Doing the interviews, um, which are uh, crazy in itself. And then from that to the pro day, um, to the team visits, uh, all that stuff. And then eventually, you know, you get to draft day after everything, and you're just sitting there, man. You've given your all. Like I said, you've put your best into this. And then you're sitting there, you're watching the TV screen, and you're seeing the names start to come in, right? You're seeing guys start to get drafted. And it's like, some guys you're like, oh man, congrats to him. Awesome player, awesome career. Then you start seeing guys like Southwest Idaho, and you're like, What? <laughs> <laughs> what? And then you see Northwest <laughs> you know Oklahoma. And I'm like, what? Where did this guy come from? Or in like, I don't even, I didn't even know this person existed. And um, that's when you your heart start beating fast. You're like, oh man, I don't know where I'm at where I'm going to go, when I'm going to get drafted, that's when you start to really realize, like, this thing is a business. Like, it's no feeling. Nobody cares about your feelings. Nobody cares that it's your dream. Like, it's a business. And so, for me, I, I sat down, and it was – I don't care where you get drafted at, it's still going to be, like, the longest time span in your life. Um, so, for me, it happened the second day, and I was, like, towards the end, like, literally one of the last picks of that second day. So I was literally watching the TV screen. Like, that first day was cool because I knew I wasn't going to get picked. That second day, I got a call from a, a team, from the Colts. I'll talk about it now because it's, it's been 10 years now. But um, I got a call from the Colts. And they're like, man, we, we know you're You you know you're anxious. We know you're ready to play. We got a pick in the second round. We're going to try to get you, man, so just hold tight. And so I'm like, okay, cool, cool. And so, man, that, that second pick, uh, second round pick came up. And I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm looking at my phone. I'm, I'm My heart's beating off fast. And then all of a sudden, nothing happens. And I look up at the TV screen. Roger Goodell comes up. And he's like, with the uh, whatever pick, 90-second 90 sec, 90 pick of the second round, Indianapolis Colts select Patrick Anger, Iowa. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's how y'all do it. <laughs> no callback, no nothing, no explanation. It was just like kept them moving and then now I'm just sitting there like I don't know what's gonna happen next man I'm just like you know the picks just continue rolling in other teams that had interviewed me before uh they they picked guys like another team that was on the radar that I thought could potentially choose me was the San Francisco 49ers I went out out there and visited with them when they had uh, uh Mike Singletary yeah being another oh, short great, linebacker. How great
0: would that have been, right?
1: Oh, man. I was like, this is perfect fit. He's a short linebacker. I'm a short linebacker. This is all good. Yeah. You know, Patrick Willis is out there. He could be my mentor. That pick came up. They took Navarro Bowman. I was like, dang. <laughs> <laughs> and then, man, a couple picks after that. um, Sitting there, man, I'm, I'm ready to just hang it up. I'm like ready to just call it a night, go up to my room, go to sleep, get ready for the next day, and then. Like, right before this uh, third round is about to end, phone starts ringing, and 615 number, pick it up. It's Jeff Fisher. He's like, Rennie, I know you've been waiting for a long time, but welcome to the Tennessee Titans. The whole time, my my life is just, my whole entire life is just flashing before my eyes, man. Like, just uh, everything from childhood to all the reps, man, all the times I was doubted, all the times I, you know, went to the wake room early in the morning and, stayed in the film room after everybody was done, like all the time, my family struggled, like everything just flashed, man. And, you know, as I'm talking to him, everybody's getting excited. Everybody's crying, like all that stuff, man. Just, it's like, like I said, it's like Christmas It's like a mix between Christmas and a marriage. Like it just was the best film in the world. And then after that, man, after I talked to Jeff Fisher and the defensive coordinator, Chuck Cecil and the pro personnel guy and, uh, and, and, in the midst of all the excitement and whatnot, I, I hang up the phone after talking to them, and the minute I hang up the phone, I look up at the TV screen. My name is flashing on the screen: Randy Curran, University of Georgia, Tennessee Titans, uh, third round pick. And then I look back down at my phone, bro, and no lie, it was like my phone hit the jackpot. Like I had <laughs> really like 300 text messages come in all at once. Um, my my voicemail box went full in like two seconds. It went from like empty the pool in two seconds and um yeah it was just crazy man just just a surreal experience man just uh and I was just so thankful you know all the people man like I said that just like helped me on my journey because you don't get to a point like that man without this uh, strong village a strong community so like from my little league coach to my pastors to my chaplains to the teachers man like I was just, uh, like, just thankful, man. It, it was the best experience. One of the best experiences of my life.
0: Well, how great is that, too, with with your family being in the Atlanta and Gwinnett area? You know, Nashville's a that's a drivable trip. So, like, it's not right. even that you would be so far. Because, like, San Francisco would have been awesome for all the reasons that you listed. But you would have been a country away, right?
1: Right. right and right. so,
0: and it's, it's cool from a proximity perspective as well. So, what... Yeah. Tell, tell the listeners what the main differences are from the athletic experience as a college player versus yeah. what it becomes when you're in the league. Because I think there's a lot of disparity between what people know about
1: those two experiences. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many differences. One of the biggest difference, man, is just the, the knowledge gap. So, you know, when you get into college, most guys are around the same range of age. So, you know, you get into college, you're typically around uh, 17, 18 years old. The oldest guy is around 21, right, uh, to 22 years old. You might have a guy right. who comes in, comes back in that's, you know, uh, former military or some a guy that played another sport that uh, went pro, and now he's coming back. Like we had Josh Murray who did that, who played pro baseball. But he was yeah. still only like 23, 24. When you get to the league, bro, like <laughs> – that age and knowledge gap is so ridiculous. Like, the guy ahead of me when I got to the Titans, Will Willispoon, was 32 years old. I'm, I'm 30, 32 right now. He was, like, 32, 33 years old. And so the knowledge, the amount of knowledge, the amount of experience, like, I would never be able to, like, surpass that. Like, I don't care how many reps I get, whatever. So that's one of the, the main things is the fact that you're not just playing with guys who, like, you're going to go out and hang out with afterwards. Like, these are grown men who have right. families, who right? live, like, this has been their profession. they played with these guys for years. They know the vet moves. Like, it's just different. So even if you stay in that weight room, a guy can just understand, like, how to take a certain angle or how to just nuance a different a certain play. And then even off the field, the, the guys will know, you know, they've already been in the game in terms of uh, just how to manage themselves, man, how to manage uh, being, like, having a financial advisor, an agent, Knowing how to conduct themselves, business-wise, and, and all those things, so you're having to learn that so quickly, man. And and not only that, just the change in lifestyle is another thing. Yeah. In, in college, you you don't have that many options, right? You you got if you if your parents are struggling, you got that Pell Grant. You know, you know you're gonna get that. Uh, the money that you get from the scholarship you don't really see unless you're you're living off campus and you get like a a stipend when you live off campus. Um, that is basically like an offset of the money that you would receive if you were living um, in the dorms, right? So yep. you get a little bit of money here and there. Well, you get to the league and now you got, you know, my first installment was $90,000 for my signing bonus. So you get that in your bank account, man, and you've never seen that kind of money. Yeah. All of a sudden you got all these different options, man, that you never had before. And you got, it's like, uh, you know, fly fruit flies or something. Like you got people uh, people that are coming that were never around before, who smell money, who smell opportunity. And so knowing how to navigate those things brings on a whole new challenge, man. Just, And you're still only like 22 to 24 years old, and your brain isn't even fully developed, but you're, you're having to now become basically the CEO of your own company, which I don't care who you are. Take any kid coming out of college and put them in a CEO position and watch how successful they're going to be. So... You know, just those things uh, uh, psychologically is one of the biggest hurdles. And you get to, I, I tell people all the time, you get to that Ricky mini camp and, and training camp or whatnot, and they hand you a freaking playbook that is thick. Like that thing is thick. You got about, you know, six to 12 uh, different defenses that you install on a daily basis. And they install it for about an hour and a half to two hours. You're watching the film. You're going over you know those play calls, and then when you get on on that field, they expect you to know that thing and, and be a pro. Like run it like you've been doing it your entire life. And right. If you can't get that thing down, or if you can't, uh, if you're not, you know, proficient in one on one man to man drills, ain't no coach saying, "Oh, let's let's meet up so I can go over this with you." Nah, you going home. Like you're going, you're getting that plane ticket home, and it gets very very real unless you're a draft pick and they've invested in you. If you're a free agent, like your margin area once again is extremely slim. So if you mess up a couple times, like I saw guys go, get sent home because they didn't do a good job in man-to-man drills, or because they messed up a couple times, uh, you know, w- with their uh, play calls and whatnot. man, that's that's how tough it is. And then the other thing that you see, man, is just the unfortunate demise of, of guys. Like that's that's having to accept that reality that. This is uh, this is a business. Like you guys are literally like Pokemon cards, like uh, horses in a horse race. Yeah. So <laughs> you you get traded and discarded and replaced. Like it's nothing, man. Like like I said, unless you're a draft pick, that's the only way that you're really safe. If you if you're not a draft pick, if you're not a guy who's like a face of the franchise, like a Matt Ryan or whatnot, like you have to look over your back every. Every day, you can never get comfortable, and um, you know that that was one of the toughest things to accept because you can be as good as you want to be, and sometimes it's like, sometimes it just comes down to the salary cap, or sometimes it's about you know a guy like a Matt Ryan or like I'll give you my example, Chris Johnson. You rush, you I don't know if you remember that year, yeah, for 2000
0: okay. he, yeah. yeah, 2K yeah two thousand yards, two
1: K, yeah, two K CJ, yeah, two K CJ, right? So yeah. he needs a after he gets that two K, he needs a bigger contract. And so that means that they have to cut cut some uh some guys off, man. They have to yep. have clear room to make room for that salary cap. And so that means some guys who are good enough are going home. Yeah. And that happens all the time, and fans don't realize that. Like it, it it's, a lot of times it has nothing to do with your performance. It's just about we need to balance this checkbook. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, you like a Pokemon car. you like a horse. You know, a horse in a horse race. So they'll get rid of you, bring somebody else in who's cheaper. And, and that's why you see a lot of uh, undrafted free agents getting picked up, not because they're such amazing players. Nah, they cheat. It's cheaper to keep them. Cheap. Than it is to right. Keep that second, third year guy who was a third round draft pick because you have to continue to like pay them at that level. Um, so those are the things that man, I didn't know going in, and most most of us don't know that when you love the game, it is so disheartening when you realize how much of a business it is and how many things that how do you control no matter how hard you work. Like the year, I'll leave with this. Like the year I got cut from the Titans, I led the team in tackles. That was the first time I led the team in tackles, and still, and did everything I could. Still got cut. Yeah, so that
0: brings up that brings up a like a follow up question. How difficult is that mentally to reconcile when you know I'm a big proponent of control the controllables, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna control all the things I can control, and the things I can't, I'm not gonna waste any energy on that. So to your point, there's only so many pieces of the puzzle that you get to control as a player in the NFL. And so how do you reconcile knowing, look, I I couldn't have done anything else. And, you know, there's nothing about it I could change that would have made the scenario change. I just have to be kind of, I guess, at peace with that, knowing that I controlled the controllables. And then you just keep it moving. Right. Like. I'm just going to yeah. move on to the next opportunity, I guess. But th- that is that is a much easier said proposition than
1: than done, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's extremely hard. And I still have days where I look, I'm watching a game on, on you know, NFL Sunday or whatnot, and I'm just thinking to myself, man, dang, what could have been? You know, I, I, I know I was – I always knew I was good enough to play at this level. I'm watching guys, even now, that I played with, played against, who are dominating I'm like, well, like I, like I I played with this guy. I know I'm good enough. So that is the tough one. The toughest parts about it is just knowing your potential, knowing what you could accomplish. Uh, But at the same time, like I was, I got to that point where it became more than just about being on the field. It was about becoming the best version of myself. And so for me, I had to redefine what success was and what winning was for me. And as long as I knew I did everything, to maximize the opportunity. And like I said, to become the best version of myself, then I had to just let the chips fall where they may. And then I'm a man of faith. So I truly believe that like, you know, there was a reason why I didn't stay 10 years in the in the NFL. There's a reason why opportunities didn't work out. Like what I do now as a speaker, as an author, as a you know leadership and business coach, is so much more meaningful and so much more impactful and fulfilling than anything I could do on a football field. Because at the end of the day, I'm just, if I'm on that football field, no matter how many hits I make, I'm just entertainment. But now I get to, you know, I am I get to be an influencer. You know, I get to be an influencer. So uh, those are some of the things that helped me overcome just uh, knowing that those there were those things that I couldn't control, man. It's just the knowing that I left everything on that field. And once I knew I did that, man, whether it was at University of Georgia, I can't nobody tell me yet that Rennie Curran did not leave everything his whole entire heart on the field. Every single play I was going balls out as hard as I could maximizing this five ten and a half, five eleven and a half, five, frame to the best of my ability, throwing like literally throwing my body at office alignment and whoever else came my way. So like just knowing and understanding that, that I did every single thing that I could, you know, that gives me peace, man. And I, I can look myself in the mirror as a man. I think that's what we should, what we should all strive for. Just in life in general, knowing that we made the best of all of our opportunities, anything that was given to us, we went into it with the right attitude, whether it worked out or not. That's, you know, whether people treated you right or not, that's, uh, you know, it it doesn't matter. It's all about how you approach the situation um, and all those things, man. And and like I said, once you look at yourself in the mirror, in the the day, to me, you should have nothing but but joy in your heart and, and nothing but gratitude. I heard an interview
0: with you once where you talked about your decision to go to Georgia. And I I thought it was really compelling how you framed it because you had mentioned that you always knew you wanted to be in Atlanta eventually. And you knew that Georgia would provide a couple things via your football journey. One, there's an enormous alumni base Georgia graduates in the greater Metro Atlanta area. And number two, Mm -hmm. every single quote unquote fan that you're earning on the football field could one day then turn into a business contact. And that struck me because, number one, I think for any of us that were 18 and 19, that's a very forward thinking um, approach to take. And yeah. It, I think, it speaks to your entrepreneurial spirit. I just, yeah. I think, in some ways, it's not something you can manufacture. That's something that's a little bit innate. So, yeah. has that, has that always been the goal for you, to, to become an entrepreneur, to, to own your own businesses, to, to have dominion over uh, the course of
1: your life and how you're utilizing your gifts. Yeah, that, that definitely. I mean, definitely an innate innate thing, and um, something that I also saw exemplified growing up. As like I said, my my dad, man, uh, when both my parents came here, my dad didn't have his immigration papers right away, his citizenship right away. That was the way that he was able to empower himself was through entrepreneurship. So he was able to. uh, He had a friend that he knew from Liberia that had developed the skill of uh, fixing shoes, shoe repair. So. We're talking designer shoes, cowboy boots, so high-end yeah. shoes. Yeah. Not just your guy who's at an airport, you know, shining shoes, but, you know, uh, a very unique skill. And so through that, you know, he developed that skill, and uh, him, my mom, and my grandfather got enough um, enough money together to where he could buy into um, a franchise, hacky shoe repair, and everything. And so through that was, you know, I got to see, literally with my own eye, see him have the ability, even with it, being an immigrant with a thick accent, man, being able to be in control of his own destiny, being able to, you know, like I said, help my cousins, uncles, aunties come over here as refugees, start a whole new life, empower themselves. Uh, And then, you know, I just saw him even just in moments where I was like, man, wow. Like seeing him deal with customers and like not take any shit from anybody like that as I was like, Seven years old, you know, just watching him tell a cut like, if you don't like this, you can leave. Like, just you know, being in control of your own destiny, man. That that always struck me. And um, and then my dad, he was always somebody who he was a man's man. Like he worked extremely hard and just would not take was relentless in how he approached things and just took pride, man. When when he wasn't fixing shoes, like he would make sure that we had the best of things. You know, he would make sure like he he just. You know, he, he didn't do, there's a lot of things he didn't do right, but just setting that standard, man, and that work ethic and the values that he brought. And this is a man who didn't, he didn't have a father in his life. Like, my dad didn't meet his father until he was my age. And he he grew up, like, when I, when I, man, when I went back to where he grew up and saw, like, the things that he had to overcome, I had no excuses. I mean, this is a man who grew up, like, it's one thing to talk about growing up in, like, a rural area here in poverty here and another thing when you talk about poverty and having a single parent home in a third world country like that's a whole different animal right right and so to see him be able to power himself through entrepreneurship that's something that always stuck with me and, and um was just like something i wanted to emulate and something i wanted to do and so i my entrepreneurship journey started as early as like 10 11 years old like i, I uh, my dad would have me mow the lawn in my at my house and so um you know i thought to myself man you know how can i get to a point where i don't have to ask my parents for money i don't have to ask for things because like i said this time the war was going on they're helping a lot of our family so the last thing i wanted to do was ask them for anything so i got that lawnmower started going around my neighborhood and i remember just how it felt to make a hundred dollars in one day mowing lawns you know and just being 11 years old and you know when you're 11 12 years old that's a fortune that's a so, lot of money, man. That's that's yeah. a lot. Of,
0: that's a lot of baseball cards to buy, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. So just <laughs> just being able to, you know, make hard earned money, honest money, uh, and, and being able to, you know, be empowered, man, through through uh, adding value to people and learning that skill, man, knocking the door, being a salesman. That that young of an age and hearing no, you know, all those different things just became ingrained yep. in me, and uh, I was able to take that onto the football field with me because people don't realize recruiting is, you got to be very entrepreneurial. So I had to go yeah. and I had to get with one of my teammates and their dad, uh, the, one of my teammates' dad and make my uh, film, recruiting film. That's no different than, you know, making a marketing ad, right? right. Um, and so, and then I had to go to University of Georgia and, and get in front of Coach Rick and that was my way of sales. Like now that I look back at it and sales yeah. and promotion. So right. all this time, man, it was about a lot of it was about having that entrepreneurial mindset for me, being that guy who was undersized, knowing that I, I couldn't just take that conventional route. Like I had to do I had to be innovative. I had to think outside the box. And so, um, yeah, I only worked, man, like, two, honestly, like two actual jobs my whole entire life, basically, man, like I was worked um, in a moving company. Um, moving stuff. And then I worked in a warehouse. My little league coach got me that job. And like, after those experiences, I was like, man, I'll never work for anybody else again in my life, man. Uh, Unless I'm working with them, you know, as a consultant or as a speaker and what I do now.
0: I'm interested to hear your perspective on this via not only your own personal journey, but also what you see in your business life now as an author and a speaker I one of the interesting things for me about the athletic world is whether you finished playing in high school, whether you finished playing in college, or whether you finished playing professionally, athletes I think find their identity in mm-hmm. the space where they were athletically successful. Right. And I think it is a gigantic transition once that avenue of their life is no longer active and present. Yeah. And I think it's a big struggle and a big fight to then find who they are and who they're supposed to be now that that chapter is closed. Was yeah. that a challenge for you? And have you have you seen that in your work since you retired?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Any any athlete who said it's not a challenge is, is going to be uh, either the line or they, they never love the game. Like, I think those are the only two ways where, you know, they're not going to admit that it's a struggle. If you, if you were just out there doing it just because you were good enough and just because you were trying to please your parents or just trying to please people around you and be a part of it, then I could see how it's not that, that really that much of a transition. But, it, uh, transition. but if you really love the game and you really gave your all and you really dedicated yourself to it and you really bought into the culture and bought into the idea of being a part of a team, and bought into, you know, the relationships and you love running out the tunnel and you love just studying the game and really becoming great, then it, it's, yeah, man, it's, it's an extreme, extreme struggle after you're done. And, you know, your our minds are like, we're habits of, uh, are creatures of habit, right? And right. so even after you take that jersey off, even after you remove yourself, there's just part of your mind and your wiring that is still attuned to being an athlete. That's yep. never going to go away, especially the fact that you're doing it in your de- uh, developmental years. You know, when yep. you start from young, and that's I think that's what makes us different from, like, military guys. Like, military guys start a little bit older. I mean, they're yep. still in that point when they start when their brains aren't fully developed. But the fact that we start from, like, our childhood, like, it is yeah. literally your identity. Like, it is not no, like, you know, maybe, it's and buts about it. This is, like, part of you. And so... You know, I look at it multiple ways. The fact that, like, when you take that jersey off for the last time, and the fact that that's part of your identity, it's like part of you dies. Yeah, that's right. So, that's the first thing is like understanding that you have to go through a mourning process, just like if you lost somebody in yes. real life. There's the yes. phases of grief, right? You have to go, you know, I don't know all the steps of grief, but I mean, I'm sure you, you know it, you know, the acceptance and the denial and all those, all those phases of grief. Like you literally go through that. And then another thing that I realized about it is it's no different than a person who's going through their midlife crisis. Like the fact yeah. that you have to literally start all over from scratch right. and rebuild, like no matter if you had another thing that you were working on or whatever, like it, this thing is such a big part of your life. Because when you look at the the whole entire picture and the experience, it's like, you know what time you're supposed to wake up in the morning. You know uh, what time you're supposed to be in the weight room, the family, like your whole day is planned out. You know, uh, you have a staff around you, you got your coach, your trainers, like you have this whole entire world created that is now gone. So you have to pick up the pieces and build from scratch. And that alone is traumatizing because it's not like when you're done, they say, here's your team for life. You don't get a life coach and a life trainer and, a, you know, a person who helps you with your meal plan in your regular life. I'm like, nah, you on your own, <laughs> which is completely different than everything you've experienced up till then. You've always been a part of the team. You've always had a coach. You've always had somebody to tell you what to lift in the weight room. So just even navigating that is extremely tough. So, yeah, man, it, it was tough. And I have the, the biggest thing that's helped me is number one is I found something that gives me that same feeling that I had on the field. And number two you know I re, I tried to recreate those structures that I had and I think as an athlete we have to do that we forget that right yep. we, ha- we, I agree we all with that. try to yeah when we're done we all try to go at it like you know in a way that we were never wired to do we, we were never successful as athletes because we did things on our own yep. right because we didn't have a coach and so what's different now like I, I I have to have mentors I have to coach even if I don't have a coach I have to coach myself. I have to review, you know, my performance on a weekly basis. I have to have an agenda, right? Uh, and and itiner- itinerary. I have to challenge myself. I have to compete at something. And so being able to recreate that has now given me, man, just so much more life, so much more fulfillment. Uh, and I'm able to now teach other athletes and other business leaders. Cause it's the same thing with people in the business world as well, too. It's, it's no different. But I'm able to help people improve their performance, improve as leaders, improve their business and overall life through uh, what I've been able to learn? First off, I think that's
0: beautiful language around that question. I think that's a great way to frame that, especially the, the piece about mourning that loss. Because yeah. I, I just, I, I think there is so much truth in that. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of former athletes could take a, a lot from that and, and apply it to their own lives, which in all honesty, I think it's a great endorsement of, of what you're doing, right? Like what you're, what you're trying to do with your business and, and the way you're trying to reach people. Because I, I just think that's so valuable. And, and to that point, tell our listeners how, how they can uh, reach you, book you, all those type things. If they want you to come work with their company, with their team, uh, with them yeah. as individuals from a mentor and coaching perspective, t- tell them how they can do that.
1: Yeah, the the easiest way is through my website, rennykern.com, and there you'll be able to find out uh, about what I do as a speaker, keynote speaker, do a lot of presentations on leadership, team uh, team building, performance, diversity, inclusion, uh, and then on the coaching side, you'll be able to find information on that as well. I work work with a lot of small business owners, uh, recent grads, and others who are trying to navigate their careers, uh, also helping individuals build or expand their personal brand. Um, you know, though if anybody's trying to get into public speaking, I can help you there or write your first book. Uh, and then I also work independently with a couple of different organizations, including John Gordon, uh, the writer of Energy Bus, yeah, and several other books. Yeah, work with him, man, and, and a few other organizations. So, yeah, renniecurran.com is the easiest way. I'm also active on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. So, I'm always open to, to helping anybody, man, and, and uh, mentoring as well if there's any young athletes who are your listeners man so i appreciate the plug well look i'm just
0: gonna say this if y'all have listened to this entire conversation with Rennie and you don't see the enormous value that he could provide you individually or provide to your organization then i'm sorry i can't help you (laughs) (laughs) i'll just put it that way um well, look, Rennie, I certainly appreciate you spending time with us. And we're going to close today. We close all our interviews the same way. We do something called the Smart 16, which is just kind um, of a little bit of an homage to Coach Smart. And it's just 16 kind of quick hitting questions just to get you, get to know you a little bit better. Okay?
1: For sure. All right. So what's your middle name? Middle name is Flomo, F L O M O, and it means protector.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. All right, who was your favorite teammate at Georgia? Oh man, that's the I ain't trouble. trying to, I'm not trying to get you in trouble or anything.
1: Yeah, man, <laughs> I, man, honestly, uh, Danelle, Danelle Ellaby was one of my favorite teammates at Georgia. That, that was my guy, man. He he was a dog. Love playing next to him, and a guy I could always depend on. A guy that I knew if if things hit the fan, like you know, that's who I want, man. That's who I want in the foxhole with me, like the, the military guy I say. Uh yeah. What's your
0: favorite game that you ever played in as a dog? Uh,
1: definitely it's between the Florida game from 07 and then uh, the Auburn, UJ Auburn blackout game.
0: What is your favorite rivalry that Georgia has?
1: I think the South Carolina game, man. That's, that's uh, you know, it's always early in the season. It always sets the tone. Um, and then when I was playing, man, it came down to so a couple – Couple plays, like few last plays in 08 and 09. Uh, both of the games I played and I was able to do something big to help us win. It's just something about those games that just, I, I showed up. <laughs>
0: so, Plus, yeah, it's never it's never a, never, a bad thing to be Coach Spurrier.
1: Yeah, not at all. See him sla- <laughs> slam his uh, visor down and all that good stuff.
0: That's right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> all right. What's your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference? Man,
1: uh, favorite away stadium. Definitely uh I say Jacksonville, man. Just, you know, going down there, man. The, the the hype around the game, just it's it's exciting, man. You feel like a rock star when you go down there, especially when you're having a good season. You know you're about to get that win. It's uh nothing like it.
0: What's the loudest game you ever played in at Georgia?
1: Man. I think it was that that uh, Auburn Blackout game when we came out in, in uh, those black jerseys, man. It was like a small earthquake in Athens. It was really <laughs>
0: nuts. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was nuts. Between that and uh, '09 when we played uh, South Carolina, and it was like, you know, fourth quarter, 10 seconds left in game. And, you know, they, they needed that score, and I batted down the pass, man. That was the loudest, one of the loudest games I played in.
0: You get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia Theater. Who do you choose? Outcast, Love that. <laughs> yeah. All right. You are you are at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party as a spectator to see the dogs run roughshod all over the Gators. What is the cocktail that you're mixing?
1: Uh, I'm going to keep it simple. Just vodka bo- cranberry.
0: <laughs> I like it. Keep, keep, keep the juice flowing. I like that. Yeah. All right. You're back in Athens for one meal. What's your favorite place to eat in Athens?
1: Man. Restaurant called Porter Porter House. Porter House is between Porter House and the Noco's.
0: Okay. I like it. I like it. All right. When you were playing, did you have any game day superstitions?
1: Oh man, I just love to have all my all my uh uniform, my socks, everything laid out neatly, man. Like that was, that was my thing. It made me feel like a superhero. Like you know, when Batman rolls up to his his uh <laughs> his uh his version of his locker but everything's just like super nice and pristine like that it's just you know like you about to go to war man that's uh that's what i love
0: what is your favorite sanford stadium pregame tradition whether it's a dog walk lone trumpeter uh larry munson coming over the airwaves to to address bulldog nation um Mm. red coat marching band uh forming forming the arch at the middle of the field. what what's your favorite pregame tradition?
1: Uh definitely without a doubt the uh dog walk. I mean that's that's something man, especially if you're a kid that you know grows up watching the Bulldogs and and you get to experience it as a child and then you roll up man and even before that like just riding uh riding up on the bus man and just just uh, I would always have my headphones on listening to like some Jeezy or some some Outkast or something like that but just Uh, That bus ride coming to the dog walk as you're riding through Athens, you're just reflecting on like, you know, for me, I was reflecting on everything, man. My childhood, my dreams, like what I'm going to do in the game. Uh, You're seeing the fans tailgating, the just atmosphere, everything leading up to that. And you roll up to that dog walking. By then you hype, man, like the bus is rocking. Everybody's just dialed in and ready to go. You put the work in. You know all your assignments and you just focus. And then you, you get out there, man. You see, you know, your family's out there at the dog walk. You see the young kids who are just like you. Uh, the fans are showing love, man. So just that whole entire experience, the buildup, is uh, what I love the most.
0: I think I know the answer to this one. But black jerseys, yes or no?
1: Definitely yes. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> yes, man. Lo- love switching things up.
0: What is the loss you're still not over?
1: That, that LSU game, our 08 season was a tough one. That, that was a tough one. I, I hate uh, hate the fact that they beat us, of course, at home. And, you know, I, I'm like, if I had just got that freaking office alignment off <laughs> a little bit faster, I would have made the tackle and, you know, would have been in a different situation. So I, that was a tough one. And, I, I mean, I played my heart out that game, but that those last couple plays um, – where Charles Scott scored at the end, that, that one eats me up big time, just because, you know, I know I got held and I know there was nothing I could do about it, but, you know, it's still like, dang, I should have done more.
0: What is your order at the varsity?
1: Man, I really don't even eat the varsity like that, but if I did, it'd just be like a basic hamburger, just something like I I wouldn't really order from there. I mean, I hate to say it, sorry to all the, the varsity fans, like it's, (laughs) <laughs> it's decent, but I would typically go there if I was invited, you know, or had an appearance there. All
0: right. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs. Yes or no?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely don't like noon kickoffs, man. As a player, like, when you – it just throws everything off, man. Like, you you got to prepare so much earlier. Um, just, yeah, it, it, everything is accelerated. And then by the time you look, like, when you are actually in tune into the game, it's already almost over. Like by the time you've adjusted mentally. So yeah, I was definitely out of all that. Only night games. My well, opinion. when you
0: when you were there, y'all y'all were staying at Lake Lanier, weren't you? So like it wasn't a short exactly. trip into into Athens either.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we come, we're coming in uh Lake Lanier, probably like if it was 12, 12 o'clock game, that means we're leaving like, you know, we're up by like seven, eight in the morning or something. It just makes for a, a, a really, really long day. And then you like I said, you're not really that adjusted mentally okay especially if you're young you're not used to it it just can kind of throw things off you get started off a lot of times slow and you know the hype isn't there as much i mean it's just something about those those morning games that's just not that appealing all right
0: college football playoff expand to eight or find how it is
1: i definitely think it should expand to eight you know, for sure there's always that argument of the team who is they don't have a strong schedule and. Uh, they, they're able to be undefeated, uh, so they want to prove themselves. And I, I think if you were to expand that, it would give more teams like that the opportunity to really show if they're, if they're good enough or not.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of me and Boss's uh, opinion, too, is that expansion wouldn't be a bad thing. And I think it removes the just the natural issue of having five power conferences and one's right. going to be left out. I just feel like there's such a power struggle when it comes to that. So, exactly. well – That's the smart 16 Rennie. I appreciate you indulging us with that. And, um, Hey man, we, we are, uh, beyond grateful for you spending time with us and sharing your story. It is certainly a fantastic one and and love everything that you're doing now from a speaking perspective, your writing, uh, helping so many folks. And, um, uh, you know, if there's a picture you want to put by damn good dog, I don't think yours would be a bad one to put by it. So we, uh, we appreciate you. We're rooting for you, man.
1: I appreciate it, man. I got, and, and just um, let you know, I got something big that's coming. And so I'll, I'll probably have to come out here again, but it's definitely going to impact the college football world. It's going to empower a lot of uh, former college athletes. And so, yeah, just, just letting you know, man, just be on the lookout.
0: Oh, we definitely will. And we'll absolutely have you back on to talk about that. So yeah, that, that's exciting. We will, we will be waiting anxiously to see what that's going to be all about.
1: Awesome man, yeah, I'm definitely gonna need the support from the Bulldog Nation. So, for sure, I appreciate it.
0: All right, thank you, Renny. We really appreciate it. Go All right, man, go dogs. Hey, George is better now. <laughs>